every time we meet corporately in the evening, that in the morning we'll have a sermon on prayer to sort of prepare our minds. And I think for uh, the rest of the year, it looks like, we will be in uh, and considering the Lord's Prayer. Last time we were together, uh, going through the Lord's Prayer, we consider the first petition, which is, Hallowed be your name. We are praying in the first petition for God's name to be great, to be held in high regard and high esteem. And there's much practical application for this first petition. A lot of it comes down to how we speak about God, the manner in which we use the name of God. So are we those Christians that say, oh, my God, are we using God in a way that is unholy, in a way that is not uh, prescribed. But not only for us, but we are praying for the rest of the world itself to hollow the name of God. And what are the means by which the world and we are to hollow the name of God? Well, the means by which we are to hollow the name of God is found in the second petition. Your kingdom come. How do we hollow the name of God? It's by God's kingdom coming. So this morning, I just have two points for us to consider, and that is, what is the kingdom of God? And number two, why do we pray for God's kingdom to come? Number one, what is the kingdom of God? And number two, why? So what is it, and why do we pray this? What is the kingdom of God? This is a vast Subject, and it dominates much of the New Testament. What is the kingdom of God? When defining the kingdom of God, there's two ways in which we must speak of the kingdom of God. We must distinguish between the one kingdom of God. The Reformed scholastic Francis Turretin is helpful here. He says, one kingdom of Christ is natural or essential. The other kingdom of Christ is mediatorial or economical. Or we can say that there's God's kingdom of power and there's God's kingdom of grace. So within the one kingdom of God, there's a distinction to be made. There's God's kingdom of power and there's God's kingdom of grace. Let's consider God's kingdom of power. What is God's kingdom of power? What is God's kingdom of power? Well, simply put, God's kingdom of power refers to God's rule and dominion over all creation. It's God's rule and reign over all creation, over every living thing. This is God's universal kingdom. Because God is sovereign over all, He, by nature, has absolute rule and supreme power over everything. This is what God has by nature. He cannot have this kingdom. If he was just merely a creature. But because he is God, by necessity, he is ruler over all. And the scriptures plainly teach this, do they not? Psalm 47, verses 7 through 8. God is the king of, of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. 
Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and Jesus came to them and saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We see from the Bible, God's kingdom of power, that he has a kingdom. And saints, this is so essential for us to know, confess, and to live by, especially in the time that we are living in now. That we don't live in a world that's ruled by two different deities. We're not dualists. Where Satan has his kingdom, although we will talk about his kingdom, but his kingdom is on par with God's kingdom. And at times in history, these kingdoms are clashing and sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. We don't live in a world where some parts are ruled by Satan and some parts are ruled by God or some parts are ruled by evil and some parts are ruled by God, but everything is ruled by God. Even Satan Satan is ruled by God. He is on a long leash, but he is ruled by God. There isn't one inch in this universe that God does not have power and rule over. But in addition to God's kingdom of power, there's God's kingdom of grace. There's God's kingdom of grace. And this kingdom of grace is not like the various kingdoms that have existed throughout history. This kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's not a kingdom that's interested in political agendas or identities or policies. This kingdom of grace is not a future millennial kingdom. There's many Christians who believe that Jesus will return and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem on a throne and establish his political kingdom. That's not what this kingdom is. Saints, we are not awaiting for a future, literal thousand years reign of Christ. For Christ is reigning now. What all this means, saints, is the kingdom of grace is not physical. But rather, it's spiritual. This kingdom of grace is a spiritual kingdom. This kingdom of grace is the rule of reign of Christ over his church. Notice the distinction there. The kingdom of power is God's rule and reign over everything, the world, everything that has being. But God's kingdom of grace is a special kingdom that has a special membership. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom where Christ rules over his church. It's the rule of Christ over his church, both outwardly, but also inwardly. By the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, this kingdom of grace was established. And it continues to be upheld and continues to be guarded by Jesus Christ. And the Bible frequently speaks of this kingdom of grace. Ephesians 1.22 says, Christ is the head of the church. Psalm 110.3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, of the dew of the youth will be yours. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 speaks 
so clearly and vividly of this kingdom, then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. What all this means, saints, is the kingdom of grace is the church. Again, the kingdom of grace is the church. And the members of this kingdom are the saints on earth who by faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the outward expression of the kingdom. But there's also the inward reign of Christ in the believer. For Christ says the kingdom of God is within you. What Christ does is by his word and spirit, he rules over us in our hearts. Now, let's get into the prayer itself and answer. Why do we pray for God's kingdom to come? We have considered God's kingdom of power, God's kingdom of grace. Now, why do we pray for this kingdom to come? What's the reason for praying this? What does it mean for us to pray for God's kingdom to come? Well, there's three things we're asking we are praying for God's kingdom to come. There's three things. First, when we pray for thy kingdom come or your kingdom come, we are praying for Satan's kingdom to be destroyed. We are praying for Satan's kingdom to be destroyed. Secondly, we are praying for the kingdom of grace to be advanced. For the kingdom of grace to be advanced. And thirdly, we are praying for the kingdom of glory to be To be hastened. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are asking three things. Number one, for Satan's kingdom to be destroyed. Number two, for God's kingdom of grace to be advanced. And number three, for the kingdom of glory to be hastened. Let's consider the first reason. We are praying for the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed. The kingdom of Satan to be destroyed. You have heard many times from this pulpit that we are living in a war. That there is a battle that's raging every single day. And this is not a war merely uh, that uh, produces blood. But it's a spiritual war. Since the Garden of Eden, there has been a great conflict between two kingdoms. The, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. As soon as Adam fell in the garden... The kingdom of darkness was established. Sin and misery began to reign in men's hearts. It was as if the moment Adam ate of the fruit of, of, the, of the tree, that Satan's kingdom was taking shape and it was making a home in men's hearts. And we don't need to look far in redemptive history to see the effects of Adam's fall in mankind. For surely after the fall, Cain kills his brother Abel. And throughout the Old and New Testament, we see how wicked man truly is, climaxing in the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Man's whole being is defined by sin, so much so that if we were to crack open men's hearts, we would see nothing but a web of misery. We would see the darkness of pollution, we would see ignorance. Ultimately, friends, we would see sin. Sin defines man's hearts. Sin defines man's reasoning. 
Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that he is God in the same way that God is God. But what it means is he has much influence in this world. He doesn't need to do much to entice people because people are already inclined to sin. And we see his influence at work in our current day, do we not? Over several months ago, a man was killed unjustly by a police officer. Many Americans cried outrage, demanding justice to be served. But friends, what were they appealing to? What was their reasoning for justice to be served? Well, they were appealing to a law that was above the law. They demanded justice to be served because they were appealing to the law that was written in their nature. That's natural law that says to love thy neighbor as thyself. That image bearers of God aren't to treat other image bearers of God in that manner. And George Floyd was an image bearer of God. For a moment in America's history, it was as if all with one voice, people were testifying to the God whom they know exists. They were testifying to that innate knowledge of God that they have, that they always suppress, but it was coming out of them. But look how quickly man was deceived by Satan. As a result of George Floyd's death, a movement was started titled Black Lives Matter. Something that began in testifying to the God that was that we serve ended with renouncing the God whom they know that is true. Now, I'm not saying that black lives don't matter. For all lives matter because all people are created in God's image. But the movement itself is an attempt to destroy God's kingdom of grace. It's an attempt not to redefine biblical language and biblical terms, but to break it down and to come up with new ways, new ideas, new philosophies, new agendas. This is just a subtle way in which Satan tries to advance his kingdom and destroy the church. We see this in his influence in movies, do we not? Through TV shows and commercials. You can't watch a commercial without some sort of political agenda or the world saying that you need to believe this. We see it in billboards. But we also see it under the umbrella of religion. Our greatest rival, the Roman Catholic Church, has for centuries been Satan's greatest weapon. Again, for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has been Satan's greatest weapon. From the popish antichrists to the idolatrous mass to their false gospel that they offer. Everything's there. They have a right doctrine of Christ. They have a right doctrine of the Trinity. But they don't have a right doctrine of salvation. Yes, one can believe by faith alone in Christ alone. 
according to Rome. You can have a righteousness that's not of your own. But in order to get to heaven, you must produce your own righteousness. That is why purgatory exists. For the righteousness that you have not attained in this life, you can go into a holding cell. You can be cleansed there. We need to pray, saints, more than ever for God's kingdom to come and for the forces of Satan to be destroyed. But how is Satan's kingdom to be destroyed? How is Satan's kingdom to be destroyed? And this leads to our second sub-point, and that is we pray for God's kingdom of grace to be advanced. In order for the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed, we must not look to swords or rifles. We must not look to bloodshed, but rather we must look to a word. Satan's kingdom is only destroyed by the kingdom of grace advancing. That is the only way in which Satan is destroyed. And this is the second thing we mean when we pray thy kingdom come. We are praying that God's kingdom of grace would advance. Well, how does God's kingdom of grace advance? Well, there's two ways. Number one, the kingdom of grace advances by the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom of grace, the church advances by the preaching of the gospel. In Matthew 16, 18, upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, what's interesting, isn't it, that the way Christ says he will build his church is by a confession. This is not how throughout history men have built their kingdoms and their empires. Throughout the history of the world, empires and kingdoms have been built by blood, by the sword, by conquest. But here Christ says he will build his church not by violence, but by a word. That's so interesting, is it not? By a spoken word. And this word is the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is simply Christ and Him crucified. That is what advances the kingdom of grace. And that is what tears down the kingdom of darkness. It's the good news of God who became man to heal and save a people who had no hope apart from Christ. This is the message that we preach. And this is the message that advances the kingdom of grace. This is how the church is built. The preaching of the gospel is how the church is built. Not by a creative worship experience. That is not how the kingdom of grace advances. Not by outreaches where we pass out backpacks and give out hot dogs. But the only and solely way that the kingdom of grace advances is by preaching Christ and Him crucified. The message of a bleeding Savior is how the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. That is the only way. This is how we pray for God's kingdom to be destroyed. And when we say this, we aren't praying for uh, that God destroy the darkness of Satan and all of his forces by merely leaving them in their sin and then casting them into the lake of fire and then judging them. 
That's not how we want the kingdom of darkness to be destroyed. But what has the power to break darkness? It is only light. So when we pray for Satan's kingdom to be destroyed, we are praying that God would take those who are in darkness and place them in light. Not by judging them, but by saving them. But in addition to the preaching of the gospel, we are praying that God would advance His church by protecting and preserving His church. And this is the second way in which Christ advances His church. Christ advances His church by preserving and protecting His church. And saints, how does God do this? How does God preserve and protect His church? Well, it's simply God preserves His church by placing men in the pulpit to preach the Word accurately, to administer the sacraments correctly, to shepherd faithfully, and for church members to be good church members. This is how Christ preserves His church. By men preaching the Word accurately, by men administering the sacraments correctly, by men shepherding faithfully, and by members being good church members. We need men more than ever in this day and age to preach the Word, not to give a speech. We need men to preach the Bible, not give advice. We need men who know the Word and know how to correctly explain the Word and know how to correctly apply the Word. And in our day and age, especially in uh, the church, we have such false views of who can preach and who can't preach. Just because someone can hold your attention for longer than 30 minutes doesn't mean that they can preach. Just because someone gets really loud when they preach doesn't mean they can preach. And just because someone knows how to make piffy one-liners doesn't mean that they can preach. People say, T.D. Jakes is the greatest preacher alive. People say that Stephen Furtick is the greatest preacher alive. These men are just shouting, but they ain't saying nothing. It is only those who know how to preach the word in a way that is accurate and that is faithful. That doesn't not preach certain texts because they don't want to cause controversy. We need men who know the word. But also we need men who can administer the sacraments to the people of God. If preaching is of utmost importance in the way that Christ preserves the church, then we can say the same thing of the sacraments because they go one hand in hand. It is the preached word that creates faith and it is the sacraments that seal faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper seal and confirm the faith that we have. They both visibly show our union with the risen and ascended Christ. And we need pastors to administer the sacraments without any unbiblical circumstances or ceremonies or elements like the Roman Catholic Church does. That's what we need. But friends, the elder isn't only called to preach, but the elder is called to love. 
The elder is not merely called to expound the text. He's supposed to take the congregation by the hand and show them how to walk in light of the text. The elder is to care and to lead in charity. This is what we tell young men who desire to preach. Oh, you desire to preach, that's fine, but do you feel called to love? Do you feel called to care? Do you feel called to shepherd? And this is our calling as well. That we ourselves are called to love. The elder has a huge task, but so does the church, the people of the church. And one of the ways Christ's kingdom of grace continues to advance is by church members simply being good church members. I remember talking to a young man a few years ago. He was telling me about a a friend of his that's in a church that so desperately wants to preach. And the pastor keeps telling him, wait your turn, son. Sit down for a minute. And I was telling this friend of mine, well, why does he feel like he has to preach so quickly? Why can't he simply just be a good church member? Why can't he learn what it means to be faithful sitting? To be faithful learning. To be faithful loving. To be faithful praying and caring and calling and texting. Why can't he find a calling in that first? You know, friends, in this day and age, a good church member is hard to find. There's many churches that pop up. There's many programs that are offered. And many people say, well, over here, they got the preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and a program. Forsaking the gathering of the saints is one way in which you are to be a good church member calling one another, showing one another love, guarding and protecting one another from false gospels, praying for one another. This is how we be good church members. Saints, all of this is a way in which Christ preserves His church. By preaching the gospel, by the right administration of the sacraments, by shepherds actually shepherding, and by church members being faithful church members. Let's now consider the third and last meaning of praying your kingdom come. And that is, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for the kingdom of glory to hasten. Along with praying for God's kingdom of grace to advance, we also are praying for God's kingdom of glory to come quickly. Along with praying for God's kingdom of grace to advance, we are praying for God's kingdom of glory to come quickly. Now, what is God's kingdom of glory? Well, simply put, saints, God's kingdom of glory is Christ's reign and his rule with the saints in heaven. That's God's kingdom of glory. It's Christ's rule and reign with the saints who are in heaven. So, We learned about God's kingdom of grace, which is Christ's rule and reign with the saints on earth. And Christ's kingdom of glory is his rule and reign with the saints in heaven. Simply put, Christ's rule and reign in heaven is what the kingdom of grace is moving towards. 
Christ's rule and reign with the saints in heaven is what the kingdom of grace is moving towards. Again, God's kingdom of grace is His reign over the church, and God's kingdom of glory is His reign with the saints in heaven. Puritan, the Puritan Thomas Watson says, the kingdom of grace is glory and seed, and the kingdom of glory is grace and flower. And what he simply means by that is, the kingdom of grace is the seed, and the kingdom of glory is the flower that that seed will blossom to. He says the kingdom of grace leads to the kingdom of glory. And saints, what we are praying for when we say your kingdom come is for God's kingdom of grace to give away to God's kingdom of glory. We are praying for God's kingdom of grace on earth to give away to God's kingdom of glory. In other words, we are praying for heaven to come down onto earth. We are praying for heaven to come down Onto earth. For the church on earth to meet with the church in heaven, there's two ways in which this happens. The first way is by the success of the gospel. By the success of the gospel. How does heaven come down onto earth? By the success of the gospel. The kingdom of God is progressive and it grows throughout history. And although there will always be opposition to the church, we aren't to view the church like many view the stock market. Sure, sometimes there's more growth in the church in certain seasons than others. But there'll never come a day when the church stock market crashes. There'll never come a day when the church will be unlimited from the face of the earth. There never will not be a preacher. But even to the final days, God will save someone. There will never come a day when people will stop being saved. And no matter what your particular view is of the end times, no matter if you think that it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse, know this, that Jesus will have the victory. No matter if you believe that we one day will not be able to meet here. We have to meet in caves or in our own homes or secretly or through text messages. One day, Christ will come in all of His glory. God's kingdom of grace will advance. And His kingdom on heaven will meet with the kingdom here on earth. In spite of present opposition to the gospel, the gospel will reach to the ends of the earth. Christ will succeed and every people will bow their knee to Christ. This is what the Lord says in Malachi chapter 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incest is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Pastor Antonio said just a few weeks ago that we aren't to allow current events to interpret the Bible. You know those people. They read what's happening in Israel. They see what's going on in America. They have read Left Behind. And they say, it's coming. He's coming. It's getting worse. I hear rumors of wars. It's going to get bad. We're not going to be able to meet. Well, friends, if you think the world is going to get worse and worse, 
then please know that in the end, Jesus will win. No matter if you believe the world is getting worse, no matter if you believe the world is getting better, Jesus will win. Satan will be defeated. And the last enemy, which is death, will be defeated when Christ comes down from heaven in all of his glory and the dead shall rise first. This is why I'm so confused when Christians say that they're pessimistic concerning the future. And I get what they mean. That there's going to be intense and more intense opposition to the church. I get that. But if we were to take a step back and look at the overall picture. It says that Jesus is Lord. It says that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this second coming of Christ is the second way in which the kingdom of glory comes. For many Christians... Saying, come quickly, Lord, come quickly, is a scary thought, is it not? It's a sobering thought. For me and myself, I'm very hesitant in saying, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. Because I have a brother who was not saved. I have a cousin who just committed suicide. I have family members who are Roman Catholic. I have friends who are atheists. And if Christ was to come, then these people would die in their sins. And for some of us, it's hard to say, come quickly, Lord, come quickly, because we're still in our sins. We still are allowing the kingdom of darkness to reign and rule in our hearts. And saints, let me tell you this, that if you allow sin even an inch of sin to have dominion in your heart, then you will have no room for Christ's kingdom to abide in. We are to pray for Christ's kingdom to come. But when you pray that, think about your own salvation. But also think about the people whom you are praying for. This is why we are to pray for God's kingdom to be advanced. For Satan's stronghold and influence upon the world to be teared down. But what a glorious day that will be, saints. What a glorious day it will be when the clouds finally break. When that trumpet finally sounds off. And that, that rider on the white horse will come and we will meet him in the air. What a glorious day that would be. When Jesus Christ will come, not as the suffering servant, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What a glorious day that will be. When Jesus Christ in all of his majesty, the same Christ that was unrecognizable. That we will see with our own very eyes. We are to pray for Christ's kingdom of glory to come. Because then we will be free from these things that hold us back. These sins that keep keeping us from experiencing all of the grace of God. This is how we pray, saints. 
When we pray, we pray for thy kingdom to come. And in summary, what have we learned this morning? Well, when we pray, we are to pray for God's kingdom of grace to advance, namely for the church to succeed, for the gospel to be preached, and for Christ to preserve and protect his people. And we have a promise. What does he tell Peter? That the gates of hell will not prevail. There will be forces that always try to uh, build up towers, build up walls. But the kingdom of grace will always knock it over. And when we pray that kingdom come, we are praying for Christ's kingdom of glory to come quickly. We are praying that we will meet with the saints in heaven. What an what a imagery that will be. That we will meet with Paul, with Peter, with David, with Augustine. That we will meet with the saints who have gone to be with the Lord. And God's kingdom of glory will be finally realized here on earth. What is the great application for us this morning? How do we live in light of this? Well, friends, it's simply this. We are to pray. I can give you a list of reason upon reason and things that we can live on, but ultimately, in light of this sermon, we are to pray. We are to pray confidently. Because know this, saints, that when you pray your kingdom come, you are not praying in vain. You are not praying for something that might not happen in the future. For God will have the victory and his kingdom will come. Let's pray.